walking along the Roman roads that are that are still around today, you you just it's just so easy to imagine what it was like two thousand years ago. Belisarius' story is a great story. I don't know if I've told it well, but I think it needs to get out there. Hello, and welcome to History Through Fiction, the podcast. I'm your host, Colin Mustville, and today I am thrilled to be joined by Robert Bruton, author of the Double-Edged Sword series, Empire Resurgent, Empire in Apocalypse, and Empire in Twilight. There's a lot of things that happened in the 6th century that happened in this story that are happening today, and I think people can identify with them. Robert Bruton was born in Detroit, but grew up in Minnesota. In college, he studied Greek and Roman history and spent a year at the University of Louvain in Belgium, where he studied philosophy and classical languages. Bruton also attended seminary school. Afterward, he took a job with the CIA as an intelligence officer and developed a fascination with political intrigue. Bruton served in several overseas assignments, including one country that was once part of the Eastern Roman Empire. It was there he gained a love for the region's hospitality and tradition of toasting. Bruton has traveled extensively throughout the countries that once constituted the Roman Empire and spent a great deal of time in Rome and Istanbul, where his three-part historical fiction series takes place. Today, I'll be talking to him about that series called the Double-Edged Sword series. So to start, I'd like if you could set the scene for us. What was the Byzantine Empire, and when and where within that empire does your series take place? Uh, my series takes place between the years 530 and 565, which basically encompasses the military career of General Flavius Belisarius. And uh, it takes place during the reign of Justinian the Great, uh, who was emperor during a time when after two centuries where the Roman Empire had been essentially collapsing and dissolving in the West, uh, it was thriving in the East. And he, uh, he used his reign in the early days to try to reconquer the West. And so he conquered North Africa from the Vandals, um, Italy from the Goths. He held off the Persians. And things were looking really good until the climate change happened and... Um, the bubonic plague hit, and then it was just a long, sad continuation of the continual decline of the Roman Empire. I'm curious to know more about Belisarius because I I work in a school. I teach social studies. I'm also historian. Most of my research um, revolves around local history, where I'm from in Minnesota. But I was not familiar with him before this interview, and he's he seems like he accomplished quite a bit. Can you speak to Maybe um, it, why he's not a more known historical figure? 
You know, it's funny. I had the, I had the same problem, and I, I have to say I don't have a good answer to the question. If you talk to people who are really in the know, and, and they were to list, say, the top 10 military generals in, in world history going back, you know, 3,000 years, a good number of them would list Flavius Belisarius as one of the great generals. Um, but yeah, he's not well known, primarily because um, Westerners lose interest in the Roman Empire after 476. But he he's famous for, and I know General Washington loved him because he was um, he was somebody who could take a very small army with limited resources and defeat a superior opponent. And I and General Robert E. Lee admired him too. But he was he was quite quite famous in the 18th century in during the Enlightenment period. They loved him in France, um, and he was seen as a just a a very gifted general who was absolutely loyal to the emperor, but who was persecuted uh, because of it nonetheless. So I like him because he's a, he's a great general, but also he's a, he's a really good man. And uh, um, I, I think he, uh, he deserves more of a hearing than he's gotten in the last 1500 years. And when did you discover this history of Belisarius or, or when did you kind of develop the idea that you wanted to have him as your central figure in a novel series? Well, I did my master's degree at Norwich University on the role that climate change played in the decline of the Roman Empire. I was looking to add some some new perspective on um, on why Rome fell, and and there's just been a whole new set of data that's come up because of ice cores and studying climate change and tree rings. And I started reading about this, particularly a book by Professor Kyle Harper called The Fate of Rome. And he talks about how climate and disease played a role in the decline of the Eastern Byzantine Empire. Um, So I started reading about that. And then I read a a Byzantine historian named Procopius, and he writes about the military career of Belisarius. And I just fell in love with this guy. He's just such an amazing figure. I mean, Despite the, the incredible odds, he he overcomes these tremendous uh, challenges and uh, manages to overcome his opponents. And some of his opponents were not just the military ones, but weather, food shortages, famine, um, and uh, he, he dealt with it all successfully. Well, you talked about some of the research you did about the fall of the Roman Empire and the climate change that contributed to it. And looking at your educational background, it's it's very thorough. Um, so what led you away from, you know, academic history to historical fiction? And what was that process like for you to fictionalize this great um, historical figure? I, I think there's more of a readership for historical fiction. Um, there, there's been a lot of good histories written about Belisarius, but no one's reading them, as you noted. He's, he's not well known. But I think if we can bring a good historical fiction book into the market, um, I think we can change that. Um, Belisarius' story is a great story. I don't know if I've told it well, but I think it needs to get out there. Several people have tried um, there's a great book written by Robert Graves called uh, Count Belisarius that was written in the 30s, but nobody's reading it anymore. But I think this would be a, a great book and a great movie someday, perhaps. Well, let's talk a little more about 
each one of the novels. Um, you have Empire Resurgent, Empire in Apocalypse, and Empire in Twilight. Mm-hmm. Could you give us, I guess, just start with a brief synopsis of the, the first novel in the series, Empire Resurgent? Sure. So that starts in the year 530 when Belisarius is holding off the, uh, the Persians from their efforts to uh, take over Mesopotamia. And he holds them off, and, and the Romans win their first battle against the Persians in more than a century. And then he's recalled to Constantinople. And at that point, Justinian is having all these legal reforms, some of which are very unpopular, and the city goes into a riot. And they, they pretty much burn the place down, and Belisarius comes in and saves the day. And then uh, after that, he is sent to North Africa with, with 20,000 men to try to liberate North Africa from the Vandals. And with a small army against all odds, he manages to defeat them in a matter of about six months. And so conquest seems really easy. So Justinian sends him into Italy, and that results in a long four-year campaign. And in the middle of that campaign, you have uh, uh, thousands of miles away in probably what is uh, Iceland, this massive volcanic eruption, probably the most violent eruption in, in human history that sends up so much volcanic ash that it covers the earth, it blocks the sun, and you have 18 months of darkness during the day and, and cold and frost during, during the night, even in the summertime. And Belisarius has to try to feed his army when, when crops are failing and he's got all these, these problems. But he overcomes them. And, and then that first book ends in 540, where he basically... Um, triumphs in Ravenna and takes Italy from the Goths. So it's quite remarkable. So it's it's the empire resurging. It's getting back to where they were before the disasters of 476. And then in, uh, in the second book, Empire and Apocalypse, we start to see some of the consequences of that climate change, uh, the continued crop failures. Uh, There's probably another volcanic eruption either in modern El Salvador or modern uh, Indonesia, Krakatoa, that sends up more. So they get this this, this second hit, and uh, it continues to be cold. And then Belisarius um, is sent back to Persia because the Persians have invaded. And right about the time he's there, um, this vast trade network that Justinian has built up, um, and you you have a thriving empire, but all of a sudden... This this uh, this trade network becomes the the thing that undermines the empire because you have this uh, these rats infested with the Yersinia pestis carrying flea, and it brings it to Pelusium in Egypt, and then from there to Constantinople, and it spreads quickly throughout the whole Mediterranean, and within a year, anywhere between one half to one third of the population of the Eastern Roman Empire is completely wiped out. And we've seen, you know, in, in the modern pandemic, what in America is about one out of every 1,000 people dying and how disruptive that was. You, you can just imagine if you lost one out of every two. Um, so th- there's this apocalyptic mood in, the, uh, in this time in which people think, well, we've had war, we've had plague, we've had famine and death. It just seems that the, the end is near and, and people are preparing. So that whole book, de- second book, deals with the uh, this, this, this sense of the, the apocalypse coming and the end being near. 
And then the uh, the third book um, deals with some of the additional consequences. Rome starts going into decline. Um, they're not able to hold their conquests in North Africa, in Italy. The Balkans start slipping away. Persia becomes more successful. Um, but this rivalry between Belisarius and Justinian, where Belisarius is very popular and Justinian's kind of old and cranky, um, and he resents the successful general that constantly overshadows him. And so he starts... Uh, He's, 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 he's extremely cruel to him and abusive, but Belisarius remains loyal. And then in 559, um, the, the empire's in such dire straits that they've completely abandoned the, the, the defense of their capital. And these Bulgarian Huns come in and sweep across Thrace and uh, burn villages, steal uh, the women and children for slaves, kill the men. And there's no army to defend them. So Belisarius is called out of retirement. And with 300 veterans that he gathers from all his old wars, he chases off 2,000 Huns and restores the, uh, the security of, of the area around Constantinople. And then once again, Belisarius's popularity surges with the people, Justinian's plummets. And then because Justinian's is seen as an incompetent leader, there's a movement to put Belisarius in charge, of which Belisarius has absolutely no knowledge. But as a result, he is accused of, of treason and put on trial and suffers a, uh, in prison for eight months while this whole thing is sorted out. Um, and in the end, he, uh, he's, he's vindicated. Um, and then the, the book comes to a conclusion shortly after that. Wow, it's, it's hard to imagine all those events in in one person's life. Um, it actually reminds me of a Radiolab episode I heard. I don't know if you're familiar with Radiolab, but they they did an episode called Worst Year Ever, and it was about 536. Yes, and, yes, yes, yes. And I, I found it so fascinating, and I was just surprised and amazed that I did not know about about these things that happened. And, you know, they we, we, we were going through su- such tough times and, you know, it was helpful to look back at history and say, well, as bad as it is today, there have been worse times. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Professor Michael McCormick of Harvard University was the one who wrote a very famous article um, called and he in which he called 536 the worst year for a human to be alive. And he makes a very compelling case um, about just about how awful it was. And it, it it continued to be awful for a full decade. It wasn't until say 545 before things started returning to normal. But yeah, it was, there were, it was just, that was not where if you had to pick a time and place to be um, in, in the last 2000 years, that would be the last one on the list. <laughs> well, you've given us a very good overview of the history um, involved in your series. Um, but what about some of the, the personal aspects of Belisarius's life and maybe some of the, the emotional truths that are conveyed through his story. Sure. And that, that for me was the most interesting part of the movie. All, all interlaced through this, this dramatic drama of military conquest is this relationship with his, with his beautiful wife, Antonina. And she was a former prostitute, much like uh, the Empress Theodora and never quite abandoned her, 
her previous lifestyle, even after she married Belisarius. And he adopted this godson named Theodosius, whom he adored, uh, but his wife adored a little bit too much. And at one point, um, he's, he's in a cellar going to get some wine, and he sees his wife in flagrante delecto with Theodosius and catches the, and this, this scene of his wife being unfaithful to him with his, this ungrateful godson just eats at him. And so this, this kind of serves as a backdrop for this whole story. And he loves his wife. He's ready to castrate Theodosius for what, you know, this betrayal, but he can never get his hands on the guy because every time he tries to get close to him, or gets a team to pick him up, the guy flees to a monastery in Ephesus. And this happens This happens several times. Um, but Belisarius never never falls out of love with his wife, despite the, uh, the abuse. He's just absolutely brokenhearted. And then the, the shame of his wife cheating on him is, is, is very widely known. And it, uh, it undermines his ability to lead his fellow officers um, there's some reason to believe that the Empress Theodora didn't want Belisarius to become too popular and overshadow her husband. So she basically encouraged this kind of uh, alternate lifestyle from, with Antonina, who was, a, who was a close friend of hers, uh, to the point where it, it basically almost undid Belisarius's marriage. And so he's he's got to struggle with this. He's also got um, this rivalry with Justinian, where um, he's even though he's loyal, because he's always so popular with the people, he's conquering, he's bringing treasure back to Constantinople, distributing it to the people. He's got this personal guard with him all the time, that and he he personally funds it. Um, so he's got a loyal following. But it's considered a threat to Justinian, who who reigns miraculously for 38 years. But um, if it hadn't been for Belisarius's intervention uh, several times, he probably would have been toppled. Um, the uh, the Nika riots is is another dramatic um, event in history that people don't know about. Um, essentially, you had these two chariot factions, the Greens and the Blues. That, that united against Justinian, against his legal reforms, that was trying to uh, have equal justice under the law and bring in some Christian ideals uh, into the legal system. But it was very unpopular among a certain group. And so they rioted. Oh, um, he got them to all go into the Hippodrome after a, a good horse race and sent Belisarius in to cut them all down. And in the end, 30,000 people were massacred. Uh, during this riot. And that basically assured Justinian's reign for the next uh, 30 years. No one was going to challenge him when they knew what he was willing to do to stay in power. So there's a lot of interesting dynamics between Theodora, Justinian, Antonina, and Belisarius running through the story. Yeah, and I can only imagine a lot of personal uh, conflict for Belisarius in doing his duty. Um, but right kind of not enjoying it or not not sure if, if if he should because of how he's being treated in his personal life um so you from what i can gather you're very well traveled um how has some of your travel kind of fueled your curiosity and, and your imagination in order to tell these stories um so i lived in the 
former Georgian or the former Soviet Republic of Georgia for two years. And that was that was the center of the so-called Lazic War where Belisarius served. And Belisarius had a number of ethnic Georgians in his army. So one thing I do, for example, the Georgians have this wonderful tradition of what they call the supra. And it's kind of a combination of a Thanksgiving dinner and a, and a drunken orgy um, where everybody's, well, not, not to the point where they're throwing up, but they're, they're just, you know, imbibing freely and, and sharing each other's company um, late into the night. And they're, they, they have this tradition of toasts where they get up and they speak from the heart and, and have these long toasts and they have to, they have to drink from a goat horn. So this, this whole experience that I had, I incorporate into the story. Um, my travels in Rome and, and Istanbul, um, helped me set the scenes, um, walking along the Roman roads that are, that are still around today. You, you just, it's just so easy to imagine what it was like 2000 years ago. Um, and then there's, there's, I mean, we, we know what Belisarius looked like. There's pictures of him in the, uh, in the church of San Vitale in Ravenna, where he, Antonina, Justinian, and Theodora are all depicted in this beautiful mosaic. Um, so there's there's a lot um, in my travels that I was able to incorporate. And then the whole apocalyptic thing. I remember I was in Ravenna, and I noticed that they, they show Christ seated on this blue sun. And I thought, well, that's unusual. Christ is supposed to be seated on a red or orange or yellow sun. And I researched, why is it blue? Well, it's because when you get so much volcanic ash in, in the uh, atmosphere, the sun turns blue. So this, this depiction of Christ on the throne in front of this blue sun is really a sign of the apocalypse. Um, and and you, you see this all over, um, all over the, the, uh, in a lot of depictions where Christ, if he's sitting in front, on a throne in front of a blue sun, it means that this is the end and, and he is coming soon. So I was able to incorporate a lot of the mosaic art in Ravenna into the story as well. I'm curious also about what you fictionalized and how comfortable you were doing that. Did did you have to change a few things and and was it, you know, a sacrifice you made for the story or was it um, something that you kind of struggled with deciding what you could and couldn't change for, you know, artistic liberty. Yeah, yes, absolutely. Um, I started with about twice as many characters in the story as I have now. And what I had to do was merge characters. So, for example, in the opening scene of the first book, um, as Procopius tells the story, there's a there's a duel, kind of like a David and Goliath scene before a major battle. And there's a fellow named Andreas who gets and f- gets up and fights this Persian, but he's a he's a non-player for the rest of the book. And I said, you know, why do I want to waste time in my first chapter developing this story about this guy who never shows up again? So I I made that the person challenging the Persian Belisari so I could do some character development. Um, but a number of times I had to merge characters, and I had to have you know, two or three friends that are with him constantly through the entire book, even though in the historical record, some of these guys drop off. But everything in there, I think you could say could be true. Um, and most of it actually is. The thing that you, as a writer, you have to guess about is the motives and the the emotions. And that's, that's where historical fiction can make uh, the history come alive as you 
kind of weave um, people's passions into the narrative history. Definitely. I want to ask about the writing and publishing process for you. Um, when, I mean, at what point did you know you were going to write a series? Um, how far into the series did you get before you started querying? And, and, and how did you decide to move forward with publishing and kind of when? Yeah, I started working on the book about uh, three years ago after I finished my my master's degree. And my plan was to write uh, a war and peace of Belisarius. And it was a very large book, um, probably seven, eight hundred pages. And I gave it to editors to tr- work on. And they all said, this is this is too big. You can't as a first time author, you cannot sell a book that big. And so I looked for ways to break it in half, but it didn't break in half easily, but it broke into thirds pretty easily. So at that point, I guess it was about a year ago, I, I broke it into thirds and it divided nicely into the rise, the, the story, and then the decline. And um, I found that uh, this 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 division worked really well. And so I have a publisher for the first book and the, the, the second and third, I'm hoping to use the same publisher, but I'm still still working through those and, and working out some of the kinks. Um, but I've been working w- working with editors now for for two years to try to make sure it's a it's a compelling narrative and and a real page turner. Can you go into a little more detail about what that is like? Um, how much changing you had to do? Was there like back and forth with your editors? Do you go along with everything they suggest? You know, how much stronger does it make the story to 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 spend two years working with editors like that? I think it's it's really good to get perspective of other people. I, I shared the book with about a dozen friends and family, and uh, their input was absolutely uh, crucial to my making this into a, a good a good novel. Um, I showed it to one publisher and he said, this is a, about a year ago. And he said, this is a great novel, but he said, your, your characters lack passion. They need more passion and your, your battle scenes, they need more blood and gore. (laughs) So when you get stuff like that and, and you hear it two or three times and I'm, even though I've read books about how to write, I'm not, I'm not an expert by any means, but you, it starts to sink in and you say, yeah. And then you, then you read other books and you say, oh, this is how you deal with a battle scene. And I started paying attention to how people wrote. And, and all of a sudden I'd, I'd have a little uh, st- story in my book that I just kind of blew off. And I said, wow, I could really develop this into something really fascinating where, where every chapter has, has the reader kind of sitting on pins waiting to find out how it's resolved. And then I also struggled with a uh, point of view. Um, I started out primarily in the omniscient point of view where you can penetrate the minds and hearts of all your characters, but I don't think that appeals to readers the same way and it's harder for them to identify with the characters. So I, I pretty much told 70% of the story through the point of view of Belisarius. I also do it from Justinian, Theodora, and his wife, Antonina. Um, and I think that, you know, focusing on point of view and not trying to do a lot of head hopping between characters, I think that really made the novel a much better read and a much more focused uh, project. 
And so after going through all that, and I know the the series is still forthcoming, but um, how do you feel now about the process? Has it been rewarding? Are you sort of exhausted by it? Are you ready to pursue the, the whole marketing aspects? Um, how are you feeling where you, the stage you're at right now? Yeah, I feel really good. Um, I enjoy doing the improvements. Um, and a lot of time, I mean, I hear people getting writer's block, but I'll wake up at three in the morning sometimes and just get a notepad and take notes because I've gotten some idea in a dream. Or I'll, I was in Mexico last week and I was listening to a, a song by Natalia Lafourcade. And I said, boy, she's singing like like Belisarius would talk to his wife. So now I've I've translated that and I'm saying th- there there are parts here that I could incorporate into his point of view. So there's just a lot of things where I get ideas or perspectives where I'm reading another book or watching a movie and I say wow there's there's some great ideas there that that I could use to uh to make my book more interesting. So I've done a lot of that and for me it's been a very rewarding process. Um but at some point you have to just say okay um I need to stop. And it was nice when I found a publisher because I basically could stop on one book and, and work on the others. But it's it's I, I've enjoyed the whole process of writing. Can you tell us about your blog? I'm particularly interested in the series you call Then and Now. Um, why do you do you have that series then? And well, what is it? And, and why do you think that's important to to write about that? I think every good piece of historical fiction in some way reflects the cultural concerns of the people and 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 problems that we're facing today. You know, if you look at uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, he's writing Lord of the Rings during the rise of the Third Reich. Um, we're living in a time where climate change is, is, a, is a very serious problem and we don't know how to deal with it. And we wonder if we're going to survive. And um, I think things like that, um, we also had the pandemic. There's a lot of things that happened in the sixth century that happened in this story that are happening today. And I think people can identify with them. And so I have used a lot of the, a lot of the contemporary problems that we have today and written them in a way that's understandable to a contemporary reader. For example, you know, the, uh, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and the riots that came out of that, in many ways, bears a lot of resemblance to the Nika riots. Um, you had this very unhappy class of people that uh, became violent and destructive, and, and the government didn't know what to do about it. So I think people see these things. And, I, and I, at the beginning of every chapter, I have uh, a contemporary quote that kind of sets the scene or tone for the chapter but I think readers are going to understand um, the sixth century better than they ever thought they could, because it's really not that far remote. Um, we're removed by 1500 years, but very much the struggles that the people in the sixth century faced are the struggles that we face today. Yeah, I think that's very important. And I'm, I'm very grateful for historians like you, authors like you that will remind us and help us see um, history as it was so that we can can learn from it and continue to get through what we need to get through. So what are you, are you studying anything else right now or are you just focused on the series? 
Um, I'm doing a, a third rewrite for the second and third book. Once I finish with that, I'd like to do another climate change thriller, and this time talking about the Mayans. Um, the Mayans are, in many ways, the poster children of, of victims of climate change. Um, there were a number of volcanic eruptions that, that, and mega droughts that caused them to go into precipitous decline. And if you look at the history of the Mayans and, and the, the climate change on, on a graph, you, you see the, the rise of their architecture coinciding with, with good weather and then, and then droughts causing a 100-year hiatus. This happens about five or six times. So in my, my, I have an outline done for a book about uh, some uh, two Mayan girls that grow up in, in an era where to appease the, the rain gods and hold off the, the god of the volcano, they have to offer human sacrifice. And the two girls are, are chosen uh, to be victims um, for this for this sacrifice. And uh, one of them is a, is a good docile girl and does whatever her parents tell her. And the other one is a bit of a rebel. And so in the story I've, I'm working out, we have uh, one of them accepting her fate while the other one leads a revolt. And we, we saw this, there's, there's evidence in the architecture and um, archaeology of the Mayans that repeatedly there would be some kind of environmental catastrophe followed by a revolution in which um, the places were burned to the ground, people were killed, and then the, they disappeared for a hundred years. And then later, a later civilization would come and rebuild upon that. But um, when the Spanish arrived in Mexico, uh, the Mayans were, were living in jungles and among ruins that they never even knew existed. A lot of these ruins weren't discovered until the 18th century. So I think there's a great story there. Like Belisarius, it's not well known, but I think it'll uh, appeal to a modern audience. Yeah, a, a great story and more things that unfortunately we can relate to. You know, I'm sitting here in Minnesota and there's a good portion of the state is under drought and some under extreme drought. And you see it across, well, across the world, unfortunately. So yeah, hopefully not... Um, something that will be repeated as what happened to the Mayans, but certainly worth worth writing about sharing and, and reminding readers of, of things that have gone on before us. Yeah, I, I'm excited. I think uh, there's a humans, hum, humanity's battle against the elements is, is, a, is an age old struggle. But I think, you know, there are some cultures that are particularly vulnerable. And I, I, I hope you know, I don't. I don't care if this book makes money, but I want people to think about climate change as a real thing. There, there is a science behind it. Of course, the climate change I'm talking about is primarily global cooling, but global warming is is just as scary. And and we, I want people to take it seriously and make it part of the public debate. So that's that's the end of my uh, of my writing. Well. Thank you, Robert. It, it is uh, wonderful to uh, yeah be able to get a message like that out through historical fiction and be able to uh, bring this history to life for all of us. So congratulations on, on your, your series. And thanks so much for joining me today. This has been a great conversation. Thank you. I've enjoyed it as well. And it's a great honor to be uh, interviewed by you. Thank you. <laughs>